I want to start by looking at three different uh, psalms, phrases that come out of the psalms that caught my attention while I was reading Exodus last uh, summer. You led your people like a flock, said the psalmist. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The second one, a chapter later in 78, says he, meaning God, struck down the firstborn of Egypt, but he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the desert and guided them safely so they were unafraid. The third is in Psalm 100. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. All three of these phrases in the Psalms speak of the Exodus. They speak of that season when Israel had come out of Egypt and was headed toward the promised land. And they all three indicate that there is more to the Exodus than the Exodus. In other words, getting out of Egypt was only the first part of the story. Yet when most of us think about the Exodus, we think about the burning bush, the plagues, the Pharaoh, and the Red Sea. But in fact, all four of those are done and over with by chapter 14. And there's still 26 more chapters in this book that speak of life after the burning bush, the Pharaoh, the plagues, and the Red Sea. What is all of that about? Well, the psalmist suggests that it's about a journey that begins by getting out of Egypt. But then in the wilderness, God gradually gets Egypt out of us. If you start to think of it in those terms, then you see this not as a single moment in history. You see it as kind of a map for your own spiritual life and other people's spiritual lives as well. There is a moment where God rescues us from bondage. But then there's a period after that which seems a lot like a wilderness and God walks alongside us in that wilderness like a shepherd. When you see the Exodus like this, you see it as a contrast, not only between two people, the Pharaoh and God, you see it as a contrast between two ways, two lifestyles, two forms of power. One is Pharaoh, and that's a brickyard. The other is God, and that's a festival. This one is forced hard labor. This one is the freedom of worship. This one is the mind of scarcity. You must make more bricks with less straw, gather the stubble for yourselves. But this one, the way of God is the way of abundance. We wake up every morning and there's something new on the ground and we gather just what we need for that day and we eat it. And we don't worry about tomorrow because God will put it there tomorrow. So our security is not in storing stuff up. It is in trusting God every day of our lives. If he doesn't deliver, we're dead. But you were dead anyway without him. So you learn to trust God daily. This way over here, the way, the way of the Pharaoh is the way of domination 
and hierarchy where the powerful rule the weak and the rich take advantage of the poor and the true patriot, the Egyptian, is known by the way they detest foreigners for the Egyptians hate to eat with Hebrews. Genesis reminds us, ah, but the way of Yahweh is totally different. It is a culture of humility and reciprocity where the weak say, I am strong, and the poor say, I am rich. And the true patriot is known by the way they open their lives, their tables, their homes, neighborhoods, and even their countries to foreigners. It's different. It's just different. And when you see Exodus in that way, there are two different paths here. You start to see how so many people who have had their deliverance, they were taken out of bondage, but they have never gotten Egypt out of them. Their default mechanisms, their settings, the way that they respond in any crisis is still like Egypt. It's not like the people of God because that doesn't come in a night. That takes time. What all of us need, and most of us are still on, is a long, winding journey through the wilderness <laughs> with a shepherd, with someone who understands us. And they will push us, but they will wait for us when we cannot go faster. So last week we came here and we were talking about how do we start to shepherd other people? I mean, how do we look around us for people that are already in our lives? And God has called us to take responsibility for, for them and for their spiritual lives. Because the moment we pay attention to someone, something in them comes alive. And they have a potential they didn't have before. It's a new creation. But if you were like me, you walked out of here thinking, all right, I think I've got two or three people that God is starting to put in front of me. I'm going to start paying more attention to them, but I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do. So we go through the passages in the Bible that speak of shepherds, and we ask ourselves, well, what are the shepherds doing here? And then we move to the prophets where the prophets criticize Israel's leaders for being bad shepherds. And we ask ourselves, what were the bad shepherds not doing that they should have been doing? And then we move to Jesus, the good shepherd, and say, what is he doing with the people that he's taken responsibility for? How can I act like that? We could not find better language than the ones we use, the words we used the last time. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. And when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. And we find for the first time language for the practices of shepherds. What shepherds do with people that they're taking responsibility for is they know them and then they feed them, then they lead them, and then they protect them. To know someone is to understand that person. It is to get inside of their situation and discern what is happening in their lives. So when we know people, we know everything they're telling us, but we also know things they're not telling us because we have learned how to pay attention and put things together. But people are crying out today for someone to know them because social media and the politics of fear have been used to drive people apart. The isolation and the polarization and the idea that my closest friend is now a health threat has caused me to withdraw from people and it is hard to know people when you're mad at them all the time. You're with them and you are always loading up your next argument. How can you listen when you are always debating in your mind while someone is talking? So people are crying out for somebody with the capacity to empathize with them. And what we have today is a lot of advice givers. Which is a way to step into your situation, give advice, and then dislocate myself. If you follow my advice and it works, you can thank me. But if it doesn't work, you're on your own. And people can smell it. And they will gravitate towards somebody who has taken the time to know them, even if that person is not good for them. We must get beyond the idea that the person with the best argument wins. That person never wins. It's the person with the biggest heart. And then whatever they believe gets believed by the others. Are you still tracking? Both of you. Good. To feed people is to grow them. It's to develop them. It's to find ways to help them mature. It's to help them see that they have a future that they cannot see and to slowly, as fast as they can take it, give to them the skills and the capacity to move into that future. But the problem in today's culture, especially in the last two years, 
is that the information and the language is coming at us so fast. People Google everything. And on social media, the words and the convictions are just constantly coming at us. And we don't know how to curate it. We can't organize it. We don't know what to believe and what not to believe. And we don't know what's out there. They won't tell us. And so as a result, people have come to believe everything less. And the role of a shepherd is to step in and give people something to believe again. Something they can put their feet on. And so what's needed is wisdom. In a day where people are shouting at one another, new ideas, new information, and we don't know how to sort it. Um, I think that a lot of pastors um, have, have, we've lost our role. God has called us to be shepherds to a, to a culture, but some of us have felt like we had to be a prophet, which means we have to, wait for it, speak into everything. And our problem is that we have spoken into so many things, we've lost our voice. When you're speaking at everything, people hear almost nothing. Part of wisdom is knowing when to speak and when to say nothing. But we have had a hard time, have we not, putting nothing down. Because the minute we get a quote from somebody, mm, man, mm, I can't wait to unleash that. And there goes your voice again. And your voice is not just your mouth. It's your soul coming out of your mouth. And when you give it to a hundred things, you discount everything. So what is needed today is people who have found their voice. And they know how to stay with that voice as they age. Because your voice changes as you get older. So if you're 55 and you're still trying to sound like a 30-year-old, you need to find your voice and stay in it. Finally, people today feel unsafe because their closest friends they have discovered have different opinions, which means now they're not friends at all. They're rivals, and every gathering is an argument. And right behind it is an attack and a counteroffensive, and people are having a hard time finding a safe place. 
We live in a culture where people have fought now for two years. And if I could be wrong about this, but I believe people are tired of fighting. But they don't know how to reconcile. They just know how to stop fighting, put down their weapons, but they don't know how to come together again. And so the need is for someone who knows how to heal what has been damaged in the last two years. Are you still there? You're really quiet. You're either tracking or you're uh, asleep. A a few observations. If these are the four practices of a shepherd, uh, then, um, then I must learn to get better at all of them. A couple of these will come easy for you and a couple will probably come harder. For me, it's pretty easy to feed because I think in abstract, translated, impractical thoughts. Hear that all the time. How come your sermons aren't practical? I'm not practical. That's why. That's what you're for. So I find it pretty easy to get out of bed in the morning and say things that people haven't thought about. And it's fairly easy, not as, in order to lead people with courage to a place they need to go, even if it's uncomfortable for them. What's difficult for me is knowing people. I can't remember their names, and that's a problem. So I'm learning to have conversations with, had conversation with somebody yesterday, like, and, the, and I, we had a good conversation. Lori said, you don't know him, do you? I went, no, no, no. Was I faking? Well, you did all right. But I can't take care of people unless I remember their name. But for some of you, that's easy. But leading them's hard because you're so busy building resonance, you forgot to go somewhere. The point is, we cannot defer to one of these things and say, well, that's sort of the way I do it and let the others go. We must develop church in all four areas because our ability to care for someone may be limited to that one or two that is the hardest. As I develop in those areas, my influence will become even broader. Yeah, are you still there now? So all of these are harder. All of these require something new that I didn't need two years ago, at least as much because the culture has changed. And I must learn to balance each of them. All right, now I want to transition to what I really came to say. I want to talk for a moment about, and just, just for a moment, I know if you're watching the clock, I want to talk for a moment about this one here, um, knowing. As I said, when we know someone, we understand them, see them, remember them. We're concerned about them. 
when we see them next week, we'll remember what they told us this week. And we're putting things together in our minds and in our hearts while we're with them so they feel safe. You know you're good at this if people start telling you things they don't tell everybody. But if you have to like yank it out of somebody, well, maybe you need work. So that's what we're trying to build here. They tell me that if you put 10 tuning forks into a room and strike one of them, the other nine will start to vibrate. Sometimes at the very pitch of the one. They call it resonance. The capacity of even an inanimate object to sense what is happening in the room and to mirror it. So we reflect it. Part of what it is to know someone is to be so attuned to what's happening in their lives that we can mirror what's happening to them. We could almost speak as them because we understand them that well without at the same time getting lost in their story. Because the problem is people will tell you what they know, they will confess. But they also know things about themselves that they will not confess. Not even to you. Then there's things they don't know about themselves and they can't confess. So part of knowing someone as God knows us is learning how to understand all three levels. What they're telling me while I'm with them, what is true that they're not telling me, and what they don't even know. Because if I can do that, I can empathize with them, which is the capacity to resonate and differentiate. I can be in them without getting lost in them. And so I can help them. How do we do this? I've talked to people that I think do this really well. And I have people that do this to me. So I've talked to them. How do you do that? How do you know that? I found that there are three things these people do, and they do it in a cycle. One is they listen really well. The second, there's no room on this board anymore, you guys. The second is they discern really well. They take what they've heard when they were with me and then they put it together when they're not with me. And they start forming conclusions which may or may not be right, which leads to the third part. They pray for and about me. 
It starts with listening. It moves to discerning. And from discerning, it moves to praying, which opens up new insights so the next time I'm with them, I can listen even better. Are you still there? The secret to listening, you're going to love this, is talking less. Dude, I'm a preacher. We talk. So tell me what's going on in your life. They get started and I'm like, no, 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 no. Now here's what's going on in your life. Because I got a sermon for that. And, or the tendency is to come into the conversation with preconceived ideas and just start dropping those all around and the person shuts down. So the secret is to talk less and to ask better questions. And the best questions are never the ones that you walk into the room holding in your pocket. You have one or two that work like that. But the best questions is, while they're answering questions, you're putting things together and asking another one you didn't know you were supposed to ask because you're listening so well. Are you there? So the key to this is talk less and ask better questions. Follow the information. The key to discerning is to become more familiar with and conversant in the word of God because the scriptures have a way of describing people's situations that they can't find language for. When you read the Proverbs or you read the prophets, they can say things with an eloquence. It's almost poetically, it's... It's almost magical how in one sentence they can describe a person's entire dilemma. And while they're talking, you're looking for language to say what really is happening here. So when I'm with them, I'm listening. And when they're gone, I'm asking myself, what does this person really want? And what are they doing to keep themselves from getting it? What is the most important thing about this person? They may not even know what it is, such that if I understood that, I would understand every other part of their life. And what does God know about this person that they do not know? And if I could get them to believe it, if I could get them there and it might take months, oh, it would open new rooms and horizons to them. But the key here is I'm doing it without them. So my soul is not cluttered by more words. I'm with them. I'm without them. And then I am with him. If we do not learn to pray for these people as well as we listen to them, we will be reduced to mere psychologists. They can do this. But what makes a psychologist a Christian psychologist is they have learned to take this into this. 
and it changes the conversation. While they talk to God about that person, the things they've heard them say, the movements in their body while they talked, their tone of voice, the pause, their eyes, they're looking around, they're taking all of it in, they're forming ideas, and they bring them to the Father. And people, sometimes when I am praying to God about people, I have ideas I couldn't have before. And I've got questions I didn't ask before. And I'm looking for things I wasn't looking for before. And now the next time I'm with them, I start looking for those things. And the conversations get even better. How are we doing? Which one are you good at? So I listen well. But when you're done talking, do you stop thinking about it after they leave and move to the next thing? Or do you carve out time in the morning, late at night, where you can start putting the pieces together? And do you talk to God about what you heard and saw? Sometimes the best thing to do here, church, is just to come alongside the Father and say, can I just think out loud? Lord, give me an 80% discount on everything I'm going to say. But that other 20% might be gold. So let me just ramble. That's a form of prayer. And as, as we open our hearts and have conversations with God in real time, he writes things on the walls of our minds that we are not capable of saying. I promise you, they come out of the blue and they inform those conversations. So I came in here this morning thinking I've got to teach how to know. And um, I was looking at the story of the woman at the well. Oh, don't worry, I'm not going to preach on it. it um, because I think it's a, it is a brilliant, brilliant example of what it is like to know someone so fully. It brings all of this stuff together. The listening, the discerning, conversations with the Father. And it goes like this. There's a woman sitting at a well, and Jesus comes in, sees her, and says, woman, would you give me something to drink? She says, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? He says, if you knew who it was that was asking you, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. She says, sir, where do we get this water? 
this moving water. You have nothing to draw with the wells deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He dug this well 2,000 years ago, been feeding his flocks. Can you do that? He says, if you drink this water, you'll be back tomorrow. But anyone who drinks the water I give them, that will become a spring of water welling up inside of them. She said, sir, I want that water. He says, go call your husband. Tell him to come back. She says, I have no husband. He says, that's right. You've been married five times. And the one that you're living with right now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. That's the moment she realizes this is no ordinary hombre. She says, sir, I believe you're a prophet. And she changes the subject. I believe you're a prophet. Say, let's talk about worship. Our people say you worship in Gerizim. Your people say you worship in Jerusalem. So where's the right place to worship? He follows her. He doesn't say, <laughs> uh, lady, uh, no. You are not ready to talk about worship. You need to talk about your home life. He follows her and says, no, the time is coming when we will worship neither in Gerizim nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit, because those are the kinds of worshipers God seeks. For God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. She, now overwhelmed, says, wait. The Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain all of this stuff to us. <laughs> I'm thinking, we well, just did a pretty good job. He says, woman, I who speak to you am he. She drops her water pot runs back to the village and says to her friends, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And as I meditated on that passage this morning, it occurred to me that I was not Jesus nor the disciples. I was the woman at the well. There are things I know and I confess, but there are things I know I do not confess. And there are things about me I don't even know.
And it occurred to me, sitting in this dark room, I need to come to the table this morning as the woman, not as the shepherd. I'm the sheep. Because the way you learn this is just to study what God is already doing for you.